Welcome to the Hobcast, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime, and suspense novels. Each week, we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of building a new creative business in this pandemic world. We'll hear from the people who make all this possible, the authors, cover designers, and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast from Hobeck Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. Hello, Hello. and welcome to the Hobcast Book Show. It's show number... 72. 72. Thank you. <laughs> <Jinx>. you... <laughs> Welcome to the show and uh, we ought to introduce ourselves. My name is Adrian Hobart. And my name is Rebecca Collins. And together we run Hobeck Books, UK independent publishers of the following genres. Thrillers. Crime. Mystery. And suspense. And our guest this week is Karen McKinley. And we're delighted she could join us in the week she published her first novel. And it's a, it's a lovely story um, in terms of her becoming a published author very late in, in you know, in, uh, well, she never really thought she could be. No. It was for middle class people. Uh, and she... Uh, She's proved that wrong. She has proved that wrong. Her book, The Storytellers, is imminent arriving in this building that we're recording the podcast. <laughs> We've Any been minute. waiting for it all day, haven't well, we? We have, yeah. Amazon is supposed to deliver it. Anyway, we're, we're looking forward to reading it. And it's a great interview. So look forward to that Two, uh, it's been an incredibly busy week this week. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, but we've also got tons of news to get through as well. Yes. Um, uh, there is a theme to our news as well, isn't it? Sort of creativity and the arts. Um, so although this isn't strictly bookish news, um, just before we came on this podcast, I had a bit of a shock. Yeah. Um, so I did, uh, I fin- well, I finished off my BA in fine art and then I went on to do an MA by research in art at the um, Wolverhampton School of Art, which is part of the University of Wolverhampton. And I've just seen on Facebook anecdotally that um, they, the plan is to uh, have no more students on the BA course. So they will see through the students currently doing the BA in fine art, but no more new students and no more MAs, MA courses there for fine art or research. So I think that means a PhD as well. So this is devastating. I, I mean, I was I was so shocked. I couldn't believe it. I was thinking, why? <laughs> I mean, obviously, it's budget. It's a budget-driven yeah. decision, but it's bonkers. Well, it, I mean, what's the point of an art school if you haven't got those things on offer, especially after the reputation of the place? But it's a wider problem for Wolverhampton because I've just been reading across it. They're, they're talking about cutting over a hundred courses yeah so it isn't just fine art oh no it's, no. it's a massive thing and, and most of it's falling on the humanities and the social sciences what a surprise <laughs> yeah uh which is becoming a bit of a wider issue um according to the union that uh you know or the lecturers and the, the, the sort of uh the academic side of things that a lot of the what they call the post-92 universities, for which Wolverhampton is. Yes, that's right. Those are the ones that were create, turned, you know, polytechnics and, um, you know, college, tertiary colleges around the world, around the UK were allowed to become universities in uh, John Major's government. I remember, because uh, we were students at the time, mm. weren't we? Mm, yeah, so they're the post-92, and 
this is happening across the board that they, they cannot sustain courses in the arts and suddenly a lot of this stuff is just disappearing for especially for a demographic who you know let's face it to get into a russell group or an oxbridge university uh you know the odds are against you if you're coming from a true working class background yeah Um, absolutely i mean uh, yeah and so this is this is a massive blow and i know it has really affected you today um it is well, it's awful news. Anyway, the, um, the unions are fighting it on the basis of um, you know employment law because it, they haven't been consulted. It's just been announced. Yeah, no, they and rightly so. I mean, you know, the tutors who taught me, I count them as friends. You know, I, I can't even imagine how they're feeling right now. They were so passionate about their teaching. They're all practicing artists as well. They just must be in shock. Well, I, it's it's awful. It's mm. awful. And, you know, you think if you're on your BA course and they say, oh, they're going to sustain it to the end. Well, yeah, you've got to. But at the same time, how many of those academics are going to disappear before the end? I mean, what value is your degree going to be um, if, you know, the resources are getting pulled yeah. while you're learning? I mean, it's just – it's a shock. I remember a, a similar thing happened when I was planning to study uh, ancient history – Classics departments were rationalised in, in uh, 1989, which meant that basically there were far fewer universities offering it, um, anything in the classics. Mm. And suddenly all sorts of academics had to move from, you know, Hull shut, which was my first choice, actually. Uh, and then Aberystwyth shut as well, their department. Oh, and right, so, right. so academics were being shuffled, you know, um, shuffled around the, the country into bigger departments. And it was sort of consolidation. Um you know, so again, uh, there's pros and cons to all these things, but mostly it was money. So yeah, um, it's that is sad news, and and, and tied into that, uh, you know, at, at a time, and we've just seen the broadcast white paper in the UK being published, which uh, you know the government are determined to sell off Channel Four from public ownership, and they are determined to get rid of the license fee. For the BBC, and now well, it does feel like they're they're bulldozing. They're, 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 oh yeah, just, yeah, yeah. I mean, the cultural vandals, absolutely. I love that phrase is perfect. Cultural vandalism. It, that's <laughs> what it feels like. Anyway, what, what's so, what's the mighty Jacob Rees-Mogg saying now? <laughs> oh gosh, please don't switch off, people. <laughs> so the Arts Council is a, a, a very important body for creativity in the UK, and it's in jeopardy thanks to um, the, the government and particularly. Um, Jacob Rees-Mogg, who is uh, the Minister for Brexit Opportunities and Government Efficiencies. I mean, that sounds quite positive, doesn't it? But... No, I mean, it sounds like something invented by Yes Minister. <laughs> yes, it does a bit, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, so, but they're basically going to look into um, whether having bodies such as the Arts Council and um, other similar organisations, whether it's an efficient use of taxpayers' money. So Rees-Mogg himself said... Taxpayers' money should be spent efficiently and on worth worthwhile areas, however you measure that. It's right, then, that we should always look at public organisations and whether they are delivering for the British people. I mean, he's trying to put that in a positive way, but all I see is negativity. Well, all I see is an opportunity for them to shut it. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, you think about the Arts Council's role in distributing money that was needed to keep the cultural foundation of this country going. Uh, that's theatre staff when the theatres were shut. That's independent publishers like ourselves. We didn't benefit because we were too young, but a lot of established companies survived through money they got from the Arts Council. I mean, there's all sorts of things that you can point to, but, oh boy, 
doesn't feel good. No, it? it doesn't. And, uh, you know, it makes me worry about the ge- generation, well, the generation of our children. So my middle son, um, he's very creative. He's, he's uh, I don't want to jinx this, but he, you know, he's very likely to get a nine for his GCSE art. He's doing AS art. Um, if he wants to go the creative route, his opportunities of, of what to study and where to study are going to be vastly reduced. And they also, are, yeah. he's going to lose the incentive to do something creative because it, it, it has this sort of culture of it's not as valuable as other areas, mm-hmm. other academic studies. And Yeah, that is, that is a real danger. Without question, it's one of the great strengths of this country is its creative industries, but you try telling the government that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right, so, OK, in this in this vortex of of negativity uh we throw in now uh the report from nielsen data and nielsen um gather all the sort of book sales data to reveal that ebook sales fell in 2021 to levels not seen since 2020 2012 so 2020 was a great year because of the pandemic Mm. everyone was reading yeah but there's been a massive dip um you know way beyond the uh you know what you'd expect to returning to 2019 levels it's gone way beyond that yeah um and uh, what shocked me really was i mean actually there were 15 million fewer ebooks downloaded in the uk overall um the value of the market 342 million pounds and that's only 13 percent of the overall market value for books and only represents one in five sales. You see, yeah, that that's the bit that, that surprises me. I think because we exist in a sort of ebook dominant mm. environment, and and what we publish, you know, it's always it, for us. It's definitely ebooks first, paperbacks secondary. Our sales are more in page reads and ebooks than they are in paperbacks. Yeah. So to hear that actually it's only a fifth of the mar- the whole the book publishing market is is surprising. Well, there's a number of factors here. Um, in terms of the revenue, yeah, I mean that's understandable because ebooks are far cheaper on on average, and, and the big publishers are starting to cut their prices to match the independent sector. Uh, than let's, for instance, I mean the one that's really profitable is is academic publishing, where you can charge forty, fifty quid for the book, right? Yeah. And uh, you know, you can, once you've got that book established, a few revisions every so often keeps it fresh, keeps, you know, and makes everyone have to go and buy another copy. Absolutely. I mean, we were both students doing academic subjects, I remember. Oh, that's hundreds of pounds. There was a second-hand bookshop, but you would you would always think, you'd have to sort of balance out, oh, do I get the sixth edition or do I get the yeah, old yeah, fifth yeah. edition? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, I remember McNay's uh, Essential Law for Journalists, which was essential reading on my journalism course, and that was being redone every year because whatever happened there was always some case law that changed dramatically you know mm. liable situation or indeed real legislation from the government that changed things and you had to have the new edition well law books is you know a good example of that so i work for aup and some of the, i see the law books you know, the one like revised third edition of the the you know different <laughs> edition different different version of the original edition with new editors you know they just sort of keep yeah yeah no, it, keep so. so there's a lot of money there but so that's uh that comes a little bit of a shock i think uh in terms of the categories that are most popular mm. it seems that erotic fiction dominates the ebook sales followed by romance shortly behind that and then there's a bit of a dip 
to adventure and war stories, and then crime and thriller fiction. Now, traditionally, crime and thriller fiction is regarded as the most popular genre in publishing. It's obviously not true. Well, I think there's a difference. Because let's be honest, you go into your local Waterstones, you are going to struggle to find much erotica in there. Some, but not much. That's that's interesting you say that. You're right. Right. So where are people going to get their erotica fix from? Ebooks. Ebooks. Because it's, it's, you know, let's face it, you're not having to take it to the till. Do you think that's you? what it is? Yeah. They're saving the imba- people the embarrassment. Absolutely. Of, only of... Ama- only <laughs> it's something that only Amazon knows you're doing. Or wherever. Leprechauns and handcuffs. Well, I think, you know, it makes me, makes me wonder that. Because, you know, in bookshops, yeah, crime is the dominant it is, genre. Yeah, absolutely. It has a whole section to itself. Well, and, and then some. Yeah. So, you know, there's always some, even the literary works are well, very often reflect, the, you know, they reflect crime, uh, you know, they're structurally crime books. Yeah. Some of them. So I think that there is, you know, there is a, a traditional bricks and mortar marketplace and an e-books is a completely different thing. Absolutely. So, yeah, that, that might explain yeah. the, the, the dominance. And you go into Waterstones, where do you find the romance? The romance books are not there in the numbers. No, it's usually some... some W.H. Smiths. Smiths have a absolutely. separate... Yeah. No, that's Supermarkets, too. absolutely. Well, I I think we should think about publishing um, erotic crime to get up the charts. Well, maybe. Maybe we'll start a new subject. I'm sure it's a genre there somewhere. <laughs> anyway, so that was interesting. Too. There's been, a, there's been a, a pressure on that, and I, I can only say that it feels like there's another pressure. I mean, clearly the economy is tanking at the moment. We've got inflation at record levels the first time, you know, highest it's been for 40 years. Interest rates are going to have to go up and up and up. And the price of everything has gone up and people are getting wages squeezed. And, you know, it's there's a cataclysm within the economy, you know, prompted by the Ukraine. And you, we haven't seen anything yet, considering the world's wheat supplies are about to run out because the Russians are blockading all the wheat in Ukraine. So, it, you know... <laughs> It's going to be a hard sell to get books out to people. Yeah. It really is. It really is. You know, I think we have to be realistic. It's going to be a very tough year. Um, and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll cling on. But, you know, it's it's not an easy marketplace at the moment for various reasons. We've talked about a number of things, you know, how digital marketing has become a, a tougher place than anyone anticipated. Within six months, it's changed dramatically and a lot of people are are struggling with it. Yeah. Okay, and then to add to all that, um, one of my strings, as everyone knows, is my narration. And I am a, an avowed... Um, well, I'm a Luddite when it comes to this feeling, you know, this movement towards artificial intelligence providing narration services. I think that's a bit harsh. It's not being a Luddite, it's being a purist. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Um, well, I mean, you know, I feel like breaking the machines on this, but... Uh, th- there is a new player in town. Uh, Google Play Books have now released um, into the wider marketplace in six countries the opportunity to use their new uh, auto-narrated audiobooks a technology to narrate audiobooks. And a number of publishers have tried the beta version in the run-up to this, and they're reporting back that it is effective. It's a lot closer than people would imagine. But it's most effective in non-fiction. And you can understand that because no matter how good the algorithm is, it really cannot convey effectively the true emotional intention of the writer in a fictional sense. No, you'd have to program that in, wouldn't you? Because the the AI can't work out from the 
the narration, the sorry, the narrative that this is an emotional part of the book. So somehow they'd have mm. to program in at this point, become emotional. I, look, I mean, there are plenty of yeah. Look, there are plenty of narrators out there. We've all heard, downloaded an audiobook and thought, blimey, they've really missed the point of what was here. You know, it's mechanical performance. It's not really delivering yeah, one thing. Yeah, that's true. So you know, AIs can compete with that, no problem. But the really good narrators, and I would like to consider myself one of those. Um, you know, we've still got a margin, but the trouble is, if publishers think, right, "What does it matter? It's cheaper this way. We'll just do it this way," then there is a problem. And and they will they will think like that because if people read it, if people don't mind the AI, and they still maintain the sales, then yes, they will yeah. go for the cheaper option. There's they no will. doubt about they that. They will. They will. And yeah, there is a movement towards you know the really recognised big narrators in the world um, can actually sell books on their own. Because it's the latest by Scott Brick or yeah, you know um, Pat whoever and Pat Freely um, and Stephen Fry and all those sort of people. It's um, that's fine, um, but I, I think it would be really unfortunate for for AI to replace all of that. I think you know, as I said before, if you could create a system where you can AI edit, or at least you know you could put the digital marker down on your audio where you've made a mistake as you do it. And then it takes it out for you. That would be great. That's that's a step forward. Someone should think invent that. Um, <laughs> that would save some time and a lot of money. But uh, yeah, it's a, it's a little disappointing. Anyway, we still believe that the human voice and the human performance AI is... podcasts. No, um, <laughs> you can do that. Uh, is the way forward for audiobooks. And of course, we have a few in the marketplace. Enter a world of great stories from Hobeck Audiobooks, from authors including Mark Whiteman, Linda Huber, Malcolm Hollingdrake, Essie Shepherd, Ollie Jarvis, A.B. Morgan, and Robert Dawes. Tamara Sullivan once more gave up on the book in her hand. She leaned back in her seat, closed her eyes, and prayed that the two-and-a-half-hour flight would bring less turbulence than the last few months of her life had managed to generate. Lottie's hands fought their way back to his hair. With a yank, she almost removed an entire clump. Stop the bloody car now, DC Bradshaw. That's an order. I squeezed the steering wheel to stop my hands shaking and leaned forward to give myself the clearest view of the road. Last week, I was looking forward to a holiday. Last week, I had a future. She dreaded the answer to her next question. But why me? You must be aware that I haven't accepted any work for three years. You'd never request someone who'd been out of the game for so long. Unless... She stopped. Unless I had some special skill. Daria leaned over to kiss Evie's damp little forehead, then jerked back in horror as a long, deep horn blared and headlights from an approaching lorry swept through the cab. A single, sickening scream left Daria's soul as Evie's rucksack scratched across her face. Betancourt waved a languid hand. Later, he pulled away the cover. Working like a camera, his detective's eyes took in everything. The woman was young, probably early 20s. Prissy. Hobeck Audiobooks. We know the power of great storytelling. And great narration. 
I love the boom. Yes. <laughs> I love a piece of music to work to that. It was fun. It was fun making that. Yeah, you so can tell. You, yeah, you can get discounts on all of our audiobooks from our website, www.hobeck.net. Time to get to our interview then. Karen McKinley. Karen McKinley is a former head teacher, a teacher by trade, and uh, grew up in a, a mining community in uh, the east of Scotland. Uh, working class background and, um, you know, uh, has never really, uh, you know, for many years, never considered being a writer. No, not at all. Then when her father passed away in 2017, she wanted to write a story to honour him, a short story, which then got picked up for a major compendium of uh, compilation of Scottish short stories yeah. from the Scottish Book Council. Yeah, I think, I think it, was. it was, yeah. Something like that. Um, and that gave her the, the courage during lockdown to write her first novel. And it's a cracker. It's uh, the, called The Storytellers. Uh, it's hugely emotional in terms of content. The impact I can't wait to read it. On readers, yeah. What she's been saying, the, the sort of feedback she's been getting. And it's launched by Bloodhound Books this week. Uh, to great success. So uh, we were only too delighted to speak to the wonderful... Karen McKinley. We're delighted that Karen McKinley joins us on the Hobcast Book Show. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me. I'm a little bit nervous. <laughs> well, no need, really no need. I mean, uh, you know, if Ian Rankin can get through Rebecca's random question, you can too. Well, so. Yeah, and, well, and Cleese too. She did very well, my random she question. She did, actually, yeah. She took it with, with, with great aplomb. So, you know, you know, it's everyone faces that challenge. But the, the overall interview... We like to be relaxed. And anyway, it's a week of celebration for you because the storytellers has come out, your first novel. It's fantastic. And congratulations. Thank you so very much. It's just been an absolutely crazy, crazy week. I've seen quite a lot on social media, actually. Uh, uh, so a friend of ours, Donna Morfitt, posted a review today. Absolutely loved it. Uh, Linda Checkley, I think, also reviewed it. And so, you know, it's been great, even though we're not directly involved because we're a different publisher, but I've seen quite a lot in it. You know, it looks like quite a lot of excitement has been generated. So. Mm. No, that's Thank fantastic. How, yeah, how yeah. long, sorry, I was going to ask, how long has it been a dream to get to this point, having a novel out? Um, I'm, I'm going to be honest. I didn't even think about writing a novel or being a writer yeah um so it hasn't really been a dream for that long uh, really you know and that that sounds really really awful and ungrateful and um <laughs> you know derogatory to writers that have been writing for years but I just didn't think I was ever good enough um you know I I, I come from a council house estate and working class and I just didn't think that that was accessible to me as a career, that I could be a writer. Um, and it wasn't until um, my dad died and I struggled with the grief and I saw a, a competition in the Scottish Book Trust for um, a short story for an anthology um, about blether. And my dad was a massive blether, you know, he told so many different stories that you never knew what was the truth. And I thought, you know, this would be quite a good way to remember him. So I wrote, a, I wrote a short story about him and it was accepted and it was published in their anthology. And I was like, wow, <laughs> you know. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a couple of years ago. Uh, and I wrote the, show, the storytellers from that. So I guess 
I guess inside me there was always that sort of dream, but I never took it seriously. I didn't do anything about it, and I didn't try to write. I just, I just, you know, I've always been a reader, um, and I'm absolutely passionate about books, and you know, I'd rather read than do anything else. And it just didn't seem accessible to me, so I didn't allow myself to dream that that might happen. You know, if that makes sense. Oh, totally. Yeah, and actually, it makes me think of um, so. Do you know uh, Douglas Stewart is the author of um, Shuggy Bane and yeah. now Young Mungo? His story is actually quite similar. Um, he oh, wanted, yeah. So he he was always a good uh, avid reader, but he, he you know he left school at really young. Um, he he went into fashion. Um, he never felt that he had the ability to write, and he he didn't yeah. really imagine doing it until one day he decided I think it was his mother actually when his mother died he decided to write her story and that became Shuggy Bain and you know he won the Booker Prize so it can happen you know in that sort of you don't have to have had that ambition all your life or written lots of books that you know I don't think it's even having that ambition or even thinking you've got the ability it's just something that didn't enter my mind you know I just thought that's not for me I'm you know this is for sort of middle class upper class people to write books not not me you know so mm. I didn't even it didn't even dawn on me that I could even be allowed to have that dream uh, if that makes sense you know I just, just didn't think that it could ever happen so this is all I mean I, I, you know I've just become a a, a bestseller on Amazon on uh and one of the, my categories metaphysical fiction and um, I've been in the Amazon Kindle top 200 for the last few days. And I'm just like, <laughs> it's really hard to take in. It's it's really, you know, it's it's really hard to believe, you know. It's um, wonderful. I mean, I'm, I'm like, who's buying this book? <laughs> <You know? laughs> People who want to read it. <laughs> it's great. No, it's great. I mean, I love stories like this. It's, you know, I wrote it because I, I really wanted it to mean something, you know, I, I, it, I really wanted it to mean somebody, something to somebody, I really wanted to touch someone, you know, and, and the reviews that I'm getting back sort of says that that's what's happening, people are being moved by it, and, and that's, you know, even if it was just one person, that's success, you know, um, so I just, I'm just really, really emotionally moved by everything that's happened this week, it's just, crazy <laughs> well i probably say that word a lot <laughs> <laughs> well you're in good company then we're quite crazy <laughs> we are so i mean the storytellers um you're saying you, know, you wanted to move people and it's an interesting uh concept i think you know and and you say it you know it you started writing after your father's death but you're, you're dealing very much with that within this in the sense that you've got three characters three women um you know uh they're trapped between life and the afterlife and they've got to prove that they've actually had the experience of love so that's really yeah i mean there's, there's a lot of that's powerful there's a lot of things going on there there's a, that's a, that's a big you know, that's a big meaty you know theme mm. to go at how challenging was it um I wanted, you know, after I'd written the story for my dad, I wanted, you know, to write like a love story, something, you know, something that would move people, something that would touch people. Um, 
but you know at the same time the me too movement was happening and at the same mm. time that the, there was because this is written during lockdown and at the same time you know i've met some shitty men in my life but you know this is not <laughs> a this is not a book about a, a man hating but by any means you know um but the stories I've heard all my life, you know, from women about how they've been treated badly by men and, you know, why you're talking about something serious or just, you know, low level, you know, control or, you know, ghosting mm. and everything. And I just fed up of it. And I thought, how can I write a love story that's true to, to the experiences of many women? Um, but... Well, sorry, I'm lost. I've got myself lost there. No, 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 I understand. I mean, you know, it is that, you know... You've, I wanted you've, to you've write reached... a love story that was genuine. You know, I still wanted to write a love story, but I also wanted to reflect the experiences of many women that, you know, have yeah. been treated quite badly. Um, and a lot of the time, you know, these are strong, independent women, career women um, that don't take, you know, crap from anybody. But it's as though some of these men see something in them, you know, whether it's their warmth, their, their heart, their forgiving nature, their need to want to um, help people improve them. And they target them, you know, and, and to me, you know, they'll say, they'll get rid of them and they'll say, oh, it's okay, you know, I'm moving on. But when that happens and it, and it happens and it happens, your self-esteem is chipped away at, you know, there's a part of you that gets chipped away at. So I wanted to write a love story that incorporated that as well. The, you know, the life that I know and a lot of women have known in the past. Um, and that's that was the storytellers. Yeah. And if you've achieved that, then, you know, it's not a mystery as to why it's selling so well, because anything that speaks to truth uh, in that fashion is going to resonate. I think especially now people are looking for, yes, of course, they want escapism, but actually they want to feel. They, you know, they want an experience. And I think if you've managed to deliver and you're getting feedback that people mm -hmm. are saying that you know, they've been moved by your stories, then that is the most powerful accolade you could ever receive. I mean, that is that is what we should, you know, as authors or as publishers, we should all be trying to do. And it's it's quite hard to achieve. But if you've managed that and you've reached a chord and you're speaking to people and, you know, in a way that um, many books don't, then that's a real achievement. So, you know, all credit. Um, uh one thing I read also, uh, somebody said that it, it wasn't just about romantic love. It was about love, you know, in sort of broader sense, mm. more um, mm. philosophical sense. And, you know, the, 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 I think that is what is touching people as well, that, that, you know, they can relate it to a sort of a wider um, aspect of what it's like to be human. I mean, something that's incredible to me is the amount of people that have messaged me and said, um, you've got me, you've got, you know, you know it's not a, a teary um your eyes out book but the amount of people that have actually messaged me and said I'm in tears you know and then start to tell me their story and wow. you know how, how privileged am I that these people are, are are telling me their story and telling me that it's touched them and moved them you know um mm. I was I was doing a, a an interview um a Facebook uh, live interview on a, a Facebook book club the other night and the, the woman that was interviewing me uh, started crying while she was interviewing me. And how, you know, I, I, how incredible is that? It's, you know, the fact that, I mean, I know the book is not going to be for everybody, you know, it might be a bit Marmite, um, 
the characters aren't particularly likable, <laughs> you know. <laughs> uh, some, some people will like them, you know, some people don't. Uh, Ronnie, the main character, seems to be, you know, you either love her or you can't be bothered with her, you know. Um, but the fact that it's even reaching one person in that way and they're reaching out to me um, is just amazing. And, it, and it's, you know, again, it's not something I could have ever dreamed about um, happening, you know. I mean, I wanted it, but I couldn't like, allow myself to, to dream that it would be what I wanted, you know. Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. In terms of your um, your life story up to this point, then, that feeds into this, into your work, uh, you're a head uh, teacher in Liverpool yeah. for, for a number of years. And um, presumably within that role, you are seeing all, you know, all manner of, um, you know, family situations, relationships, broken homes, all that sort of stuff. Um, did that was that you know was that a chord that that sort of propelled you or was it more people you've met in, in you know outside of the work environment yeah not not the workplace really I, um you know i was a teacher for many years down in england um for about, i was in england for about uh, 16 years and then in my final career i became a, a head teacher in the in the last two years um but it was more about it's more about experience that I had, that, that my friends had had, that mm. colleagues, you know, staff at work had tell, told me about. And, you know, my daughter, you know, my daughter told me some horrific, you know, <laughs> date stories, you know. <laughs> and, um, and, I, and you know, you can see it. You can see the hurt it's co- it causes. And, you know, I'm hoping men read this book as well and take some responsibility for you know, for their behavior because um it hurts it hurts it chips away at confident women at their self-esteem and their identity and who they are and there's no need for it you know mm-hmm. and it can work the other way believe me <laughs> yes yes <laughs> yes you know, I, i'm aware no i don't i don't want my ex-wife to hear this um <laughs> <laughs> I'm no, I, as well. <laughs> yeah. on the plus side though you know there, it is there is a possibility for love isn't there i mean you know it's <laughs> I, no oh, no absolutely we've got it and and we, we treasure it and, and 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 largely because we came out of relationships where that was harder to achieve and um mm-hmm. shall we put it that way yeah i'm the same i mean i'd given up on on relationships i I decided that was it you know i was in my 50s and i thought i'm done you know my Mm. career is my you know at the same time i became a head teacher and i was like i'm focusing on my children and um my career that's it i'm done i'm not even giving anything else ever a chance again you know um and then i met my husband (laughs) and And, you know, I have a wonderful marriage and, you know, a a fantastic life and, um, and, you know, there's that old cliche that it happens when you aren't looking, you know, maybe it does, I don't know. But, um, so that's why I'm saying that, you know, this is not a book about hating men or or anything like that, you know. Um, I'm, you know, my husband and I are are, uh, perfect for each other, I think. but along the way, you have to kiss an awful lot of frogs. Yes, you do. That's yeah. like publishing. I'm saying that to the authors <laughs> last week. Has, has he read the book, your husband? Yes, yes. He's been every minute of the way with me. Yeah. Um, 
he's a professor of psychology at Edinburgh University. Ah. And I'm uh, obviously used to be a head teacher. And we decided after my dad died that um, we were just going to both take early retirement. And suddenly I was like, oh, what am I going to do myself? I'm like, who am I now? You know? <laughs> <laughs> so I was like babysitting, you know, I was suddenly babysitting for my, my daughters because they were like, oh, wow, mom doesn't work anymore. <laughs> you know? Yes. <laughs> Look after the kids, <laughs> you know? So like suddenly I, I went from head teacher to granny and I was like, why I love being granny, was that all I was, you know, am, am I nothing else? So, um, and this was just after my father had died. Uh, so I went to the gym and Zumba and hill walking and gardening and all sorts of things. And I hated, hated all of them, you know, mm. um, not for me. Uh, and then board games and you know, what shall we watch on the telly tonight? This looks a good film. And I sort of realised, I'm just filling the hours. I'm actually sitting in a waiting room waiting to die, you know? It's like, like I had just lost who I was. And then I saw that competition uh, for Bleber. And then I started writing the storytellers. And my husband and I are quite competitive. And um, <laughs> he decided he was going to write a book as well, you know? Uh -huh. And... Uh, and I was really quite angry about that. You know, I thought, why are you taking my hobby? You know, this is what I want to do, not you. At least and you didn't said, go to Zumba with you. Yeah, oh, my God, yeah, that would have been a some, some state. And uh, he said, well, I'm just doing it to support you. I'm just, I said, well, how is it supporting me by writing another book that might, you know, compete against mine? And he's like, well, I'm just going to support you. And uh, he put it out on sub to agents and everything as well. But... Uh, unfortunately it didn't get anywhere um but he has been with me every single step you know like the editing process I am absolutely appalling at grammar um <laughs> you know yeah. so I'm like right okay my edits have come back the, the, you know these are the grammar can you do it <laughs> you know, can you do the grammar <laughs> edit I love that so he's got a role in. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm rubbish, you know. I'm I'm really terrible at punctuation and grammar and things like that. You know, really, really, really poor. And then, like, he'll be explaining me to me how you use, uh, I can't even remember what it's called, some sort of comma or something. And I'm like, Semicolon or something, yeah. Yeah, it was something I can't remember. Uh, an M dash or a something. Yeah. Like oh, yeah, I know all about M dashes. Oh, <laughs> I, I didn't have a clue. And he's like, you know, you've done this wrong, it shouldn't be this, you should I like, listen, I don't need to know what it is. Just put it in for me so it's right, <laughs> you know. Brilliant. <laughs> awesome. So, I love that. I love that. So um what came first? Did the deal with Bloodhound come first or did you get your agent first? Um I went I um well I wrote the storytellers within about nine months mm -hmm. and then I um went out on submission for, to agents, uh querying agents. And I was really, really lucky. I got quite a few, uh, I think I got about nine full requests and wow. um, I had quite a few agents um, interested. Um, but when I first spoke to Claire, I knew right away that she was agent for me because I just trusted her. I just, I just thought she was so honest. You know, at one point she said to me, you know, if this other agency is offering, you know, they're huge, you, you know, for the sake of the book, you know, maybe you should go with them. And when she said that, I thought, how many people would say that? How many people would mm -hmm. say, 
you know, we're quite small, go with a bigger agency, they can get you a better deal type thing. And so we've said the same thing. Yeah, so that's our first author. <laughs> and you know what I mean yeah. then, you know? Yeah. It's, it's that honesty, it's that truth that makes you trust the person you're speaking to. Yeah. And so within four weeks, I, I had I, I uh, had signed a contract um, of Syrian. And then we went out on a submission to publishers. Um, and within six weeks, we got the time uh, deal. A lot of the publishers um, during that six weeks said that they loved the story, they loved the writing, but they were a little bit unsure about trying to sell a book that was based in the afterlife. They said that mm. they'd had quite a few books before that hadn't, you know, sort of sold on submission because, you know, um, I mean, obviously we've got the Midnight Library and things like that, but he's a massive, massive author. But they were they were quite unsure about the setting of the afterlife and if that would sell or not. So that sort, and I'd been told that at the very beginning, really, you know, people were saying to me, not so sure if there's an audience for anything set in the afterlife, you know, because it doesn't quite fit into a donnery. It's not fantasy because it's all set in real life, really, apart from the beach scenes. And then women's fiction, there's that bit of fantasy because of the, of the actual afterlife being there as well. So, uh, so it, and it's mystery too. So it sort of crosses genres. And I think that some publishers, would you have been interested? Would you, you know, would you have been interested in that book? Well, uh, yeah, it could, I mean, could be not maybe, you know, if we'd sort of, if you were just judging it on that criteria of it being the afterlife, that might've been a, a, a stretch for us. Because yeah. you know, you know, we're we're dealing with mystery, suspense, thrillers, and yeah. and crime, um, principally. But um, the way we work um, is, if if a book blows us away, <laughs> as I suspect this would have done, um, we would have gone with it. Yeah, we? we were terrible for gut feeling over um, mm. business sense. <laughs> but, you know, sometimes those decisions, you know, they sort of off on a tangent. Decisions actually work out, don't they? I mean, you know, there's there's plenty of um, precedent for books that don't fit into a particular genre or cross genres or you know uh, just distinct in themselves of being big successes. It does happen. So yeah, and, and actually, you know, when you're, I mean, we produce a lot of books that that fit within certain genres, but that sometimes you need something original and different um, mm. to cut through the noise because. You know, you can go. You you can write to market by all means, um, and and be successful that way. But at mm. the same time, um, I think most of our authors are, are working within the framework of a certain genre, but taking it in a slightly different direction. So they're not, you know, it's not, yeah, you know, mm. you know, by numbers or anything like that. But I could, t- as a reader, I want, I do want a copy of your book. So, and I said, I said to you, didn't I? I said. This is this is sort of thing I would love, so I am going to buy myself a copy. Oh, thank you so much! <laughs> and I love it. Books are doing great as well, aren't they? I mean, I, did you not get some award? Uh, some awards? Was it not three books up for awards? Well, we're, we've been yeah. Mark Whiteman, um, a fellow Scottish author, has been shortlisted for Waking the Tiger for the New Blood Dagger at the CWAs, um, and last year made the long list for the McIlvanny at Bloody Scotland wow. and the debut prize as well for the shortlist. So, you know, he's wow. done very well. And, you know, uh, we have, um, 
you know, we have a certain benchmark, I suppose, with our authors. And, um, you know, he's been, you know, it's been great to see him succeed. But, you know, others will succeed of our stable that we have at the moment in the future, I've no doubt. So. And I distinctly remember yeah. reading his submission. We were mm. on the way to Clacton. Yes. And we're driving we, past Stansted Airport at the time. Were we? Were we yeah. on the motorway? Well, all the motorways are the same to me, especially when I'm reading. I was reading on my phone. I was reading on my phone and I just went, oh, I love this one. You did. Yeah. <laughs> at which point I said, yeah, whatever. You, know. <laughs> you were just trying to concentrate. Well, I was trying not to crash. Yeah, there are all these Essex white boys <laughs> driving past me in their Novas at 200 miles an hour. So, yeah, <laughs> it's definitely not, not time for me to uh, to pay much attention. But I'm glad we did. I'm glad we did. So, yeah, I mean, it is. A, it is. A, I mean, I, I looked at the I've got your your um, press release here in front of me. And under genre, it says women's literary fiction, speculative, metaphysical and mystery. So there is a broad, broad church. Uh, yeah. yeah. And it's it, it's scary because it worries me. You know, I think a lot of the reviews I've had have started with this is not what I expected. Yeah. You know? and, <laughs> and I sort of think, so were you a fantasy or were you a mystery or were you a crime? It's because it's sort of crime as well, because, you know, obviously mm. they're all dead. So, you know, how did they die? Um, oh, funny story about that. I'm absolutely obsessed by Amazon and Goodreads and reviews. And everyone has told me, do not look, do not look, you know, mm. you're just going to yeah. upset yourself. Um, because as a head teacher, I am so confident, you know, I'm so confident in my job, in my role. I know I'm good and I know I'm good. Because Ofsted inspections tell me I'm good, you know? Yeah. But as a writer, I'm neurotic, obsessive, you know? <laughs> I, I roller coaster of emotions up the minute, down the next, you know? My husband can't even bear to be around me this week, you know? <laughs> so <laughs> crazy. So I went on the, so, seeing that the Goodreads had gone up, you know, another review. So I thought, right, I'm going to have to go and look and see what it says. So I go on Goodreads and I'm refreshing and because it takes a little while to come through. Yeah. So I read the review and I was like, oh, thank goodness, you know, it's not a, it's not a one-star review because that's what I'm dreading. Came off, about two hours later, um, I get a, a message on Facebook from someone. Um, Hi, I'm really sorry to bother you, but there's a few of us discussing why you as the author have, have given your own book a one-star review. I'm like, what? <laughs> I've given my own book, one star review. So I went into panic mode and I was like back on Goodreads trying to delete it, trying to get rid of it. And I thought, absolutely crazy. I've given my own book a one star. <laughs> oh, oh wow. no, that's tragic, isn't it? I know. Oh, I didn't know you could do that. <laughs> I know. I thought, who's just going to pile on this and they're going to say, well, oh, she thinks it's only one worth one star, then we do too, you know? <laughs> Yeah. Like, absolutely. And there's no way to take it off. Yeah, I managed to um, take it off. Um, I just, oh, I can't even remember what I did. I was just in such a panic mode, but I managed to get it off. Yeah, oh, thank good. goodness. That's a relief. It's <laughs> <laughs> so good of them to ask you as well. <laughs> it's just like, you know, giving yourself a one star review is just, you know, a nightmare. That's the sort of thing I'd do. <laughs> I think what you were saying earlier about 
the 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 impact of retirement and you know what defined you was your role as a, a head teacher that by that point and i i sympathize because i mean i was you know i'm teen years in the bbc and you know a, a middle manager but nonetheless i used to carry that with pride you know i'm, yeah, I'm the yeah. deputy head of world sport at the bbc sounds really good it wasn't it was lowest of the low <laughs> within the, i know it sounds good but within the organization it was like you know who cares you know um mm-hmm. but uh, that, that was that was kind of what defined me and, and giving that up was really hard and in a yeah. sense it's taken me this you know actually I think only in the last week when we were in Bristol uh, at Crime Fest this week last week rather yeah. um, and a couple of things that happened this week in in the business did I actually feel like I am a director of Hobart Books as opposed to, I mean you know it's an interesting you know yeah. the validation of actually potentially setting up a business deal um, you know because we're doing things the indie way which is lots of Amazon ads and Facebook ads and all that sort of thing. And we're trying to get in amongst the big boys and all that malarkey. It's, it's a, it's a mm. challenge, but it was the first time I actually thought puff my chest out and went, yeah, he did. He, he did puff his chest out. <laughs> and rightly so, rightly so, you know. But, but it's, 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 so, so do you, I mean, as a, as a, you know, you had that definition, then you became granny and now you are you, yeah, a best-selling published, author. Yeah, best-selling author. No, I'm not a best author. <laughs> no, um, it doesn't feel real. It doesn't, you know, I still, I, I don't, oh, I'm stumbling over my words because I, I, it's very difficult to explain. Um, I don't feel like I'm an author. Um, I don't feel that I'm a best-selling author, that's for sure. Um, you know, I was being interviewed the other day and uh, by an author I admire, um, Emma Christie, and I just thought, why is she interested? Why is she asking me questions? You know, um, because like they are the authors to me. I'm a, I'm st- I'm a reader, and I always will be a reader. Mm. You know, and that's and I and reading's the only place that I can switch my mind off and immerse myself and sort of lose the world. You know, and that will always be my passion. As to who am I now? I, I, I still don't know. I, you know, maybe I'm sort of halfway between wife, gran, sort of author in inverted commas. <laughs> I don't know. We've got lots of hats. I mean, I, I think that's a very fem- female thing anyway. You know, yeah. I think you do. You have all these different hats. Yeah. You literally have lots of hats. A cook. <laughs> now I'm going to... Homework help. You are you are the queen <laughs> of hats. Work. You're the only person in, out there in the in in when we go to our local market town with a hat on. You're, oh, usually. I don't even notice. I do like hats, yeah, but I don't notice no one else is wearing a hat. Surely there must be someone. Yeah, no, it's very bohemian. It's, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. Um, in terms of where things go from here now, so you know, obviously, yeah, this is still very fresh, very very new. Have you got something? In, you know, a project in mind in terms of the writing, or is, it, is I, that still um, all the sort of advice that I got was like, you know, you instead start writing books to you know concentrate on the next project, you know, that'll mm. keep you sane. Um, so I've started writing book two, it's about um, it's about a couple of women that meet at a Zumba class. I write about things that I know, basically, yes. because you know, I want to make them authentic. It, um, and uh, they decide that they're going to take revenge on their um, daughter's shitty boyfriends. 
So it's more of a sort of, more of a, I think, get, getting into the crime a little bit more there. Mm. Uh, but I'm not 100% sold with it. I'm not loving it. Like I loved the storytellers when I was writing that. Um, and my other idea is um, a big sweeping love story, but with a speculative edge as well. Because I really love fiction that's got like that speculative edge. You know, like yes. the time traveler's wife. Oh, yeah, oh, I love it. Yeah, yeah. You know, the yeah. invisible life of Adi LaRue, um, you know, the Midnight Library, all that type of stuff. I mean, I, I really love that, you know. I am not in any way comparing myself to these authors or their books, <laughs> but that's what I absolutely love to read. And I think for the book that the book two that I just started, I, I'm sort of missing that. And yeah. you know, you know, I feel like, you know, I, like you said earlier about writing to market, and I thought, right, this time I'm going to write to market and try and produce something that's commercial, you know. Um, but it's not me. It's not something that no. I can get passionate about or fall in love with. And I feel like if I don't fall in love with a book and I'm passionate about it, then nobody else really will, you know. Uh, absolutely true you have to feel passionately i think it sounds like you know what your genre is or at least what your voice is i I think i think i want to write the books that i love to read you know um not that i don't love psychological thrillers and rom-coms and love stories and romances and everything i do i do but i always think that that genre that's set in real life with a little speculative edge it is, is it's something unique it's different it's not mm-hmm. something I'm going to have read before you know and and I, I love a book when you open it up and you're just like wow what a premise like um yeah. like Gillian McAllister's Wrong Place Wrong Time I just read that it was just mm. fabulous uh, you know what a premise and um Space Hopper by Helen Fisher that I've read that me- it was oh, brilliant, wasn't it? Did you cry? That yes. ending, that ending. Oh, wow. Really One good of the book. best endings I've ever read, you know? It's just beautiful. I loved it. I loved it. And it is that sort of, it's not quite fantasy because it's grounded yeah. in reality, but it's yeah. still, it's, it allows you to escape from the real world. Yeah. And it's, it's sort of got soft edges, I suppose that's what I'd say. It's not, mm. it's not, it's still gritty and it's still deep. Oh, it's just it. beautiful. Oh, lovely. lovely. I need to finish mine then. My speculative <laughs> yeah, he's, tron- got, he's got a book. He has a book in him and it's sort of, oh, you're, you're sort of writing dragging something. it out. <laughs> I'm busy running the business. Yeah, it is. It does have that. It yeah. pitches. Okay, so, I mean, in elevator pitch, it pitches <laughs> a 1940s, bit of a chinless wonder spy, you know, public school, had all the opportunities in life. Um, and he treats World War II as a bit of a game. And... Mm. He time travels into the present day, and me too. Oh wow, Ooh. that's me sold. Yeah, yeah, and the, there's a scene where he's put him in a pub. He goes to a pub, and he's just this this guy from the 1940s. He's he's watching people interact, and he's watching, yeah. looking at what they wear and what they do, and he's like, "Why, you know, oh my God, somebody's and wearing um." He tries a, to a, light up as well. That's a quite puffer, funny. A, a puffer <laughs> gilet thing, you know, and he thinks it looks like a life preserver from a from a. <laughs> A navy destroyer, and uh, then um, he sees the the types of you know the, the real ales and all their weird names. And there's one called there is that genuinely called a beer called Dog Bollocks. Anyway, he yeah, sees yeah, the pickled yeah. eggs jar on the thing, and he, he wonders whether that's the dog's. 
stuff like that you know yeah, you can have a lot of fun with it what i wanted to do what i have been trying to do i suppose is it's a, it is a love story in the sense that he's split between a relationship he establishes in in the present day with a modern woman uh, uh you know with modern values i suppose and the woman yeah. he left behind and um well, a bit like but also had that sort of split thing where he's got a guilt that carries with him because he he you know he didn't choose to be there where he is and he's mm. got a, a very loyal um you know lady in the 1940s but at the same time i wanted to send up modern society because it's full of contradictions and nonsense yeah. that someone who sees it from that traditional point of view of a british sort of chap um, <laughs> would just cut through and go what is going on in this world it's gone mad <laughs> so um yeah it, it was and it also makes him think about his values oh yeah sure so sure sure no he, he changes on. he changes i mean you know he's i mean you know as he as he would be i mean he's a colonialist so he's, he's going to be absolutely staggered and horrified when he's wandering around london just you know how um diverse london has become compared to what he's ex- you know wow. that kind of thing and obviously being a 1940s chap um he's going to be a bit of a sexist um yeah, to yeah, say the least <laughs> you know he inherited the earth he's british he's you know he's an Englishman. <laughs> So there's, you know, it, it, there's a lot of fun to be had with it. And uh, Adrian, so, wait, yeah, you, I can, I, can I beg an arc and you're finished? Yes, of course. Of course, I'd be delighted oh, to. And so you, and, Ab, Ab, and you and Abby and Makajir are, are my two arc readers so far. And that give him an incentive. To, and I know time is an issue. I understand that. But I really wanted to write yeah, okay. it. Yeah, OK. OK, we'll get on, we'll get <laughs> on that. I, I, absolutely, I absolutely adore that. It's got, it's got that sort of feel of the, you know, the connection part with Nicholas remember his name he has uh, a life in both parts and i think that's about 1940s or something as well but uh, i remember that I'm well nicholas yeah, yes yeah good night yeah, sweetheart yeah yeah but i love but i love that this is getting brought in with the, the you know the cynical look and the modern you know mm. yeah yeah uh, it's partly a reflection of me being a bloke in his 50s brought up a certain way and not coping with all of the things that you've now got to you know fit you know change your approach to um even if you never really had to i think i think where it's got to with the me too and all that stuff um and anything that is woke is the fact that there's an assumption that your values are going to be anti what they're proposing they should be uh just because you're middle class you're middle-aged you're white Mm. you're english uh uh, and ginger and um (laughs) uh and i think that's what you're working against because actually you know, one doesn't harbour those views um, yeah. that you're supposed to, but there's a, they're being projected at you. You are definitely part of the problem, and that mm. isn't necessarily the case. Mm. And uh, so that's what I find what I find difficult. So he's going to face a lot of people sort of going, well, that, you know, going at him for being the part of the problem. Um, so uh, we'll see. Uh, listen, we are we are getting close. I think I think I sense the rumbling energy of the Rebecca's <laughs> random question approaching. So I, I shall give it the build up if I don't if you don't mind. Rebecca's random question. So we were in Bristol last week at Crime Fest and in the hotel we stayed at where we went for breakfast in the morning, they had the usual fare, what do you expect? Bacon, sausages, tomatoes, beans, hash browns. Shocking eggs. Shocking eggs, electric eggs, whatever they are, <laughs> uh, croissants, um, uh, you know, toast and jams and everything. But they also had broccoli. So my... <laughs> yes two I sides know. to this question the first question is would you have had some of the broccoli with your breakfast if you were there 
That's the first part. Not at all. Not at all. I sat there, we sat there for about 25 minutes and nobody took well, any broccoli. No disrespect. I mean, Karen is north of the border and I've never seen broccoli <laughs> in the first place. So, I mean, it never happens. Come on. We so, don't eat vegetables and all. <laughs> <laughs> Unless they're fried. What is the strangest thing you've ever had for breakfast? Oh, strangest thing I've ever had for breakfast. Um, the thing is, I don't eat breakfast. <laughs> oh, now there's a question. This is coming into the Tina Baker. Do you have lucky pants territory? I don't wear pants, is what she said. So... Oh my god! Well, it's not quite as bad as that. Mind <laughs> you, you're talking about Tina Baker, and she's just a legend. Yeah, she is. is. She's absolutely. So yeah, my yeah. question to her was, do you own any lucky pants? And she leaned close and said, I'm not wearing any. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you just don't know what she's going to say. She's just fantastic. Yeah, yeah, we, we love her to bits. Yeah, absolutely. So, I, for me, the strangest thing I've ever eaten, well, strange to me, is when I was in Japan. And one of their staple breakfasts is fermented soya beans on rice. Mm. Oh. Now, to oh, them, yeah. that's, that's fairly normal. And, you know, they would have it in the fridge for breakfast with the family but i could not eat that it stunk no, <laughs> no i, no, I wouldn't either i usually I, eat um at um lunchtime that's usually the first time i'll have something to eat um i think it's just you know I, i'm a night hawk you know i'm i'm uh-huh. wide awake at night you know but you know i can be exhausted during the day shattered can't wait to get to my bed and i'll get to bed and then it'll come to about 11 o'clock and it ping, you know, wide awake again. And, yeah. and I do I do quite a lot of writing at night as well. So I probably snack a lot, like really late at night, early morning, you know, crisps and chocolate, everything that's wrong for you. Um, so I'm never hungry in the morning, you know, I'm never really <laughs> ready for breakfast. So it's usually about lunchtime. And also, um, because I'm a night hawk, I find it very difficult to get up in the morning. So, you mm. know. And that's tricky being these, a head teacher. I mean, it, you know, it was, it was. So, so I never had time for breakfast either. So I think I just got used to it, you know. I'd be yeah, like, I was say. Oh my god, look at the time and jump in the shower out the door, away to school, you know. Oh, I'm one of those people. I can't miss breakfast. So this morning, what we did, we got up and we went and played tennis for an hour, and we got back, and Adrian wow. turns to me and he says, um. We haven't got time for breakfast. And I said, well, I'm having breakfast. I can't miss it. I absolutely can't. I would have fainted by now if I hadn't eaten it. That's true. You wouldn't have had the energy for Rebecca's random question. That's for sure. I think my, I can't think of my weirdest breakfast, but um, I think the one that stands in my memory the most uh, was in on the Isle of Arran. And it was during my stag do. Um, and it was kind of the hair of the dog porridge i think they called it because it was absolutely <laughs> drenched in whiskey it oh was, wow it was fantastic i wish i you know i'm oh, gonna read no, no, no. you know. meal was uh, my daughters came down for a for a meal because i because they were still they were in scotland they went back to scotland um and i had to stay in england because of my career and they came down once for a visit we went into i don't know if it was like Hunter's Trist or a Weatherspoons or something I don't know one of those type mm, yeah. of chain pubs <laughs> and we went in there for lunch and my daughter um is very crabbit um you know 
then she, oh, do you know crabbit? Yeah, is that a Scottish word or? I think it is a Scottish word. Yeah, I'm not. Sure. <laughs> um, um, aggressive, aggressive. When she's at a certain time of the month. Um, <laughs> yeah. Okay, I'm familiar with the with the. I'm I'm with you now. Yeah. <laughs> and we went in for this meal, um, and we've been driving. Out, you know, I'd said to her, "This is a lovely pub. I, I've heard such really good things about it. You know, it's got really good food." So we went in, ordered our meals. Starters came inedible. Couldn't eat them. You know, really awful. And um, then her mains came, and I said, "Look, listen, don't worry. You can't go wrong with a cheeseburger. It's just a cheeseburger, you know." <laughs> so, they, oh <laughs> so they brought the meal, and she, and it was a she got her cheeseburger, and it was bad. And she just got and started punching this cheeseburger, like <laughs> punching it. <laughs> I'm like, "What are you doing? <laughs> Sit down." it's like one of those family stories now it's like every time she's a bit moody or something we'll be like go on punch a cheeseburger get out of <laughs> <laughs> I love that that is, that is brilliant that is absolutely brilliant <laughs> she was just so angry because she was you know well hangry I think they call it now isn't yeah, it? Hangry, like, yeah, yeah I get very hangry oh we've had some moments yeah. I mean you know uh, yeah yeah. It's like if, if if you're looking for a restaurant to eat and everyone's like, no, it's too expensive. No, I don't like look at the menu. No, we had the we, we, we went through that experience last week, didn't we? And we fortunately found a Japanese place that was really nice that actually had tables. But Friday night in Bristol, it's not somewhere you need to book ahead. You know, you cannot just. So hold it? About. he kept saying, "There's no tables in there," and I was, "But we can ask." And he's, "No, no, the next one. No, that one looks busy too." And I was, "But, but." <laughs> <laughs> I was I was in a moody. I, I I was definitely punching the cheeseburger. You were uh, yeah, by, by the time yeah. we got in there, punching the bento box. Um, <laughs> it was definitely. I mean, that's and I'm. You know, this is this is something that that Rebecca remarks upon because whenever we go somewhere, and we go away quite a lot with the business in terms of like mm. going to festivals and you know seeing mm. authors and things like that. I need to know where we're going to eat in the evening. I, don't, I think it's yeah, probably yeah, because of my background as a journalist where we were always, you know, especially if you're in, I don't know, when I was working in someone like Nigeria or Mali or something. I can understand other. if you're in Mali. Yeah, yeah, yeah you never know. know. <laughs> and, you know, when you're in Exeter. <laughs> okay, it's rubbed off on me. It's force of habit. I need to know. <laughs> I don't like to chance it. Just in case all the rest of I didn't get I didn't get this shape with that you know, on chancing on food, you know. No. <laughs> and, and, and let's not forget, um, you know, when I was in Nigeria, someone said, "Oh, you know," it was with, with a BBC colleague, and he said, "Oh, I know a really good place. Don't worry about it. it does the best soup." And I went, "Oh, that sounds all right. That's the sort of thing. You know, it's a hot day. I don't really want anything, you know, too 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 filling." <laughs> anyway, it turned out it was. Well, a we went to um, we went to. Um, just before the book came out, me and my other yeah. daughter went to Cameron House at Loch Lomond, which oh, is nice. very, very five star, um, you know, very mm. posh. They have boats coming in and helicopters with the guests and everything. Um, we went for a spa and everything, and then we went for our meal. And I said, well, you know, it's a treat. We'll go to the, you know, the five star restaurant part. So we went in and my daughter said, feel so uncomfortable you know everybody's dead pushing here you know and I was like our money is just the same as their money you know don't be ridiculous you know and yeah. we're sitting there so they brought out the meals so we ordered we ordered we didn't really know what anything on the menu actually meant 
I believe what it was. <laughs> and um, we um, ordered our starters and our main courses and everything came. And I just, I just couldn't eat it. It was like, I just didn't like it. You know, it was, I think maybe it was just too rich, you know, or mm-hmm. too different. And um, <laughs> the, the guy at the end, you know, he uh, came out just absolutely wonderful. You know, I said, can you have the bill, please? And uh, and he said, no, he says, there's no bill, you know. And this should have been about 200 pounds. And he right. said, no, there's no, he says, there's no bill. He says, if you come into my restaurant and you're eating and you've not enjoyed it, which you certainly haven't, he said, there's no bill. And wow. I just thought, what service, you know? I mean, obviously, I left a huge, huge tip. Um, but I just thought, you know, I was saying to him, well, it's not your fault. It's our fault. We chose the wrong things on the menu, obviously, you know. But he says, no, I don't care. He said, you know, you, you didn't enjoy the experience. Um, so there's no bill to present. That's amazing. I, it amazing. wasn't it, wasn't it? I just, yeah. I just couldn't get over it. Because you know it wasn't their fault. It was our, it was ours. We didn't know what we were ordering. No, <laughs> you know? no. I mean, you know, this is this is the problem that Bex and I have because I'm I I like a bit of the old high end stuff if I can. I grew if, up if eating find it. Um, Finder's crispy pancakes. And yeah. So did I. yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. Well, occasionally we had those, but I mean, you know, my my mother uh, we had a big garden, so that my dad grew every vegetable. You know, so we always had seasonal vegetables. So that was one thing that stood apart. So yeah, I mean, I suppose I grew up thinking, but I've watched Master Chef for the last twenty years, and I, you know, <laughs> like a bit of that sort of I stuff. I call it fancy pancy food. You get it very. You, love, you would love that restaurant, then you would really. Yeah, love. Oh, he right, would my have been street. In yeah. Oh, he, you would have loved it. it. You know, really loved it. But there were so yeah. many things on there that I could yeah, eat. And, and I won't even think of being drizzled. Got a jus on it. And, and what else? Um, um, yeah. Oh, quinelles. It's got to be quinelles, parfaits, you know, the whole whole shebang. Hasn't you it, would really? love it. You would love it there. I mean, the food looked beautiful. It just wasn't for me. <laughs> but the yeah. service was impeccable, you know, and to just say there's no bill, even though we'd, you know, eaten some of it, it was, it was just incredible. I just couldn't believe the service. Yeah. And a beautiful, beautiful place as well. Wow. Sounds good. Well, I'm, I'm up. No, it's like when I had breakfast on the so. Shard. They were really posh up there too. Yeah. What were. was it? What was it like? Um. Well, it was it was a three course breakfast, which is weird anyway. And the starter <laughs> I chose was waffles, and I don't really like sweet things for breakfast. I like savoury, so <laughs> I wasn't that keen. But the the waiters looked amazing. Can I tell me? <laughs> All right, that's that was the. But of course, the view was quite nice too. Of the waiters, yeah, yeah, or, I bet you. or, or <laughs> both. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Well, we Karen, actually went good. to the. Uh, we actually went to the garage afterwards and got crisps and chocolate into the lockdown room because we were starving. Did you did that last week after the Italian meal. You yes, went, I did. Went to Tesco and got a sandwich well, and a pack of the crisps. I mean, okay, I think we ought, we ought to tell that. The listeners want to hear the, the tale of the, uh, the the Hobeck meal. Um, <laughs> and, you know, this is it's just one of those unfortunate things. So, as, as I say, Saturday nights, Bristol, everything's booked up. Brian Price, who lives quite reasonably locally, knows Bristol well, booked us a restaurant, the only one he could find with a table big enough to take us, 11 of us. Amazing. And uh, this particular chain, Italian, uh, really let us down because pasta was My cold pasta was hard. or hard. Yeah, the food took an absolute epic age to come out in drips and drabs. We have sent we sent back six meals, 
Um, oh dear. And it cost. Oh, I mean. A lot of money. I, well, I think I think you know all up, it was about forty quid a head or something ridiculous yeah, was, uh, for two enough. courses, and it's just like you know you so are. So we joking. went to Tesco Metro on the way home. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sandwich cheese sandwich sorted me right out. <laughs> so there we go. Well, look, Karen, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. Um, uh, tell us where we can find you online if people want to uh, know more about you. Uh, just Karen McKinley on Twitter, uh, Insta. Even TikTok. <laughs> hey. oh, good. Good to be on TikTok. Yeah, yeah TikTok. Yeah, and uh, my website is karimckinley.com. Uh Facebook is the only one that's other way around. It's McKinley Karen because somebody's <laughs> got Karen McKinley. And I wouldn't be surprised if it's me <laughs> you know? <laughs> in a previous life, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's been absolutely, you know, I was very nervous about talking to you. I, you know, I watch all your all your uh, podcasts they're just brilliant mary is a very good friend of mine um mary chong yeah Uh, she's wonderful yeah she's she's a very good friend we we talk every single day um uh, because we've we've sort of started this together you know at the same sort of time yes yes and she's just fabulous and her books are brilliant as well and um that that's you know it's incredible to think that you're now interviewed me it's just crazy (laughs) (laughs) it's funny when you approached us it seems so long in the future you know when you said oh around may time i thought that's ages away and now we're here that's the thing you know that that's the thing you'll know that same the same as me you probably know it better than me because you haven't got this huge big money behind you and you you know you haven't got this huge budget like penguin and and Mm, and everything you have to set these things up for yourself and you know, you have you have to make sure that you've got. I mean, I've had two, three events nearly every day this week, but I set them all up at the same time as I contacted you. Because, you know, I thought, well, you know, I need to, or my book's going to just disappear and it's not going to be seen because you know the big five are going to have marketing everywhere about all their stuff. You know, so I think mm. you've got to be really well prepared in advance to try and make sure that you're you're sort of seen. Well, we hope we hope the Hobcast, yeah. you know, helps you uh, achieve all the success you clearly deserve. And uh, it's been a real pleasure speaking to you. And uh, you know, let's not be strangers. As Mary, you know, we we count her as a friend. We count you too. Oh, thank you so very much. I'm honoured. Thank you. <laughs> I'm all. now going to go punch a cheeseburger just because I want to. <laughs> so I'll have to go and pick it up from McDonald's, won't I? Because <laughs> your car's off yeah, the road. I much so, uh, much prefer McDonald's to a five-star restaurant up at the low end. Me too. I hate to admit it, but yeah. Okay. <laughs> right. Well, McDonald's, you'll be cheap date then, Carol, when I come up, come up to Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. If you came up here, Adrian, you would have, we would have to go to the witchery. Have you ever been? The butchery. Witchery. The, the witchery. Witchery. The uh-huh. It is absolutely, I mean, I don't think that I would eat. Me, me and you, we can go to Chippu next door. <laughs> he can sit in the He can sit in the witchery. I mean, it is sun, suddenly beautiful and rich with history. And you would absolutely adore the food in there. Great. He's going to look it up now. Yeah, I am. I am. I am. Yeah, I'm going to pass. <laughs> when I pass through to go to the Open Championship, that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> Fantastic. Karen, thanks so much. Thank you very much, both of you. Thank you so much for your support. Wow.
Wonderful. And I, I, I'm, I, it's not often that, you know, I'm inspired to buy the book so quickly. That's so. true. That is true. And you bought it for me, didn't you? I did, yeah, a little gift, just to make up for all the... I bought you some Mentos. You bought me some Mentos. <laughs> I bought your book. Yeah, I, I got a bit moody on Friday, didn't I? I had a rotten... Oh, yeah, had, yeah, yeah. It was a, a pizza gate, we'll call it. Well, yeah. Or mug gate, I, I, I don't know. Well, I don't know. Anyway, look, it's a cut long story short. I wasn't very pleasant to everybody. Um, you know, I stormed off a bit, came back, <laughs> stormed off again, uh, and then came back. But um, Yo-yo. Yeah, I was yo-yo, man. <laughs> It was, I don't know, it's been a good week, really, because we've done so much to push the business forward. Oh, a lot has happened in the last yeah, seven days. Yeah, remarkable, remarkable uh, few days. And uh, I think it was partly because we were harnessing the energy we got from Crime Fest mm. and the connections and the uh, networking that we did there. And the sort of energy you get from, I mean, whenever we overcome our own sort of uh, shyness and introvert qualities in an environment like that and we come back and people take us seriously um as hobeck and as people and as our writer group it it does feed into the day-to-day business yeah so we made some a couple of weeks ago i made an inquiry in relation to getting some of a a future series of books by ag aberford into maltese bookshops because the books are set the george zamet series and uh, there's one company run all the bookshops Miller Distribution, yeah, cool, yeah, they? and uh, so got in contact with them. Didn't really expect to hear much back because you know they have a reputation for not being as easy to approach as you might think. But yes, they got back to us and they're interested. So we had to quickly put together a catalogue for that, <laughs> and also for all of our other books because they're keen to look at that. So you put in a monumental Thursday. Yeah, so it was about three o'clock when you got the email, and I saw your face change, and I was thinking, mm. "Whoa, what's happened?" But it was a, a shiny, happy face. And then you said, oh, we'd heard back from Miller Distribution. And you said, oh, we need a catalogue. Yeah. And so I just thought, right, get to it. I start at three o'clock. I didn't stop except to eat till 11 o'clock that night. But it was done. Yeah. Um, 26 page PDF of our books uh, aimed for bookshops, this one. And then we had to do a reversion because we've got feelers out trying to find an agency to represent our uh, translation rights and indeed our TV and film rights for the books. And a major agency came back to us, you know, very, very quickly as well. (laughs) You know, I sort of used the momentum of that breakthrough to chase up something else. And bingo, we had to create a rights catalogue. So it was an Uh, Luckily we had, yeah. Yeah, so that was the basis and we tweaked it and off it's gone. So it's felt like, um, you know, you can go so long. I mean, nothing's been sorted out and nothing's definite. But the point is, is that, you know, you're starting often with these things in business, I guess. Even having the starting the conversation is a step forward. That's a starting point. And we haven't had that many starting points within that traditional arena. No. Um, It's difficult. But gradually, the name is getting out there. We've got a good story to tell. It helps that Mark Whiteman made the shortlist of the CWA John Creasy New Blood Award last week. That gives us credibility. Absolutely. Tons of credibility. As indeed when he got nominated for the McIlvany Prize and for the uh, Bloody Bloody Scotland Debut Prize. So those sort of things feed into each other. And it's kind of harnessing the momentum and just going for it. And kind of getting us, (laughs) getting um, our own nerves out of the way and pushing forward. Yeah. 
So, yeah, I think we should feel a degree of pride for what we achieved last week in terms of steps forward. Um, you know, and we want to continue to do that this coming week. We've got lots, lots of things to do. Uh, a reminder that we've got a, uh, we've, we've got recently been publishing books. We'll go through the list. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Bloodlines by Linda Versha. Yeah, so that was two weeks ago. And then last week, Yes, I Killed Her by Harry Fisher. And next week? Um, uh, so, uh, yes, a week on Tuesday will be Dirty Little Secret by Jonathan Peace. And Jonathan Peace, in fact, is going to be on next week's podcast. He is. He's our guest next week. So we're looking really looking forward to speaking to him. And it's a great book. It's a great series. Book two is nearly ready to go as well. From Sorrow's Hold, we've been... I've, proof that yeah you I know. Love it. we're just sort of we're about to press a big red button on that one so yeah it's a big red button july and that's the other thing with the malta thing we've had to push the big red button but with a different distribution strategy in in mind because brexit is making exploitation of books printed in the uk much much harder to do so we wanted to find a print solution we may have found one where we can print both in the uk and with the same file print in germany to go into the EU yeah. market so that that was another thing that we had to sort of scramble to 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 figure out last week and we're going to be scrambling some more because it all relies on everybody making decisions at more or less the same time so mm. we're, we're waiting for the miller distribution to let us know how many copies they they may want if they want copies and then we need to get quotes for printing a certain number of copies in Germany and the UK. And we need to work out how to get files for this new company we haven't used before, mm-hmm. even though Clay's and... No, look, we're not, we're not <laughs> knocking Clay's. It just so happens they just don't have that No, it's, that just, EU it's a arm. different... Yeah, it's I different. know they're trying to sort something out like that. And same with gardeners, the distributors. But the bottom line is is that currently, you know, a split solution like this is really the only way forward for us at the moment. So, yeah, it's a very specific need we have in this respect. So Yeah. And look, if they decide they'd like some of our other books, then we're going to have a similar situation again um, where we may be uh, doing a split print. Yeah, absolutely. But it's a way forward. I mean, you know, the more we get into any bookshops, the better. But it's, you know, it's a slog. It's it's an uneven contest in the UK, certainly. But if this works out, that would be great. So been a week where we've learnt a lot. Um, Things to look forward to in the weeks to come. Obviously, we've got Jonathan Beast on the programme. Uh, we will have our Andrew Child special shortly after that. Oh, yeah, that. not too long after that, That's hopefully. right. So. And we've also got another thing that we've saved up from Crime Fest. We're going to a couple more, certainly going to a couple more festivals before the end of the summer, possibly more than that. But we're going to Slaughter in South Wales, which is quite a small one, but a perfectly full But festival. Lynn, Lynn Laverse is going to be um, yep. featuring, so we're going to support Absolutely. her more we've than got, anything else. We'll be going to Harrogate, where a number of our authors will also be. But there's also... Uh, as we found out this week, a really fantastic event which is coming up on the 11th of June. 11th of June, so in Wigan, this is happening, and it's um, taking place at the Old Court um, in Wigan, and it's an event celebrating the publication of M.W. Craven's The Botanist, um, and also just celebrating the best in British crime thriller writing at the moment. And the authors who are going to feature on this this day are M.W. Craven, obviously, R.C. Brigstock, Paul Finch, Alcum Holland Drake, I don't know that name. Mm-hmm. Caroline England. No, not, no. <laughs> we met in. Um, yeah, we met in she's, Bristol, she's yeah. lovely. We met her at Harrogate last year and we also met her at Crime Fest. And Patricia Dixon. So uh, it's taking place at the Old Courts. It starts at 11.30 or doors open at 11.30. How much are tickets? Tickets are £15 if you buy them in advance. And um, where can you get them from? 
Uh, well, there's a link which um, I posted on Twitter. I'll probably we could put, add it to the Hobcast. Okay. Blurb. Oh, we? lots of it. The blurb. Yeah. Um, and if you if you want a hard copy of the Botanist, you could pay thirty pounds, which gives you a ticket plus a hard copy. And of course, uh, M. W. Craven we're there for signing, and also all the other authors. So if you want a signed copy of any of their books, then yep. you should go along. We we hope to be there. Yeah, we hope to be there. I can go shopping for darts <laughs> around the corner. There's a really good dart shop, A180 Darts, which is the best dart shop in UK. Fantastic. Do you know what? It's so good. They have all these rooms that spill out the back of the main shop. Oh, uh, you've told me about With all place, these ockies. And what happens is, because Wigan is one of the key places where the Professional Darts Corporation play their um, behind-closed-doors events, which is, that is to say you know, they're, they're called board events, and so there's no crowds in. There's just 128 players playing over a day in Wigan. And they all pile into this shop to get new kit, but also to practice. So any given time you go there, there's a lot of thro- you know throwers from that part of the world. You might bump into Michael so Smith. or Michael Van Gerwen could be there. Yeah, Michael. It's unlikely, but Michael Smith certainly plays there quite How about a lot. the Dancing Dimitri? You might meet the Dancing Dimitri. I would love to meet Dancing Dimitri. Okay. Uh, darts is one of our passions you may, have, you may have gathered tennis is the other we will be on the tennis court hopefully a little later uh we set the a lot last week. <laughs> those clouds over there might suggest otherwise yeah it's looking pretty soggy in a minute um I, i've got one more thing to mention which uh is sad news from my world uh one of my old colleagues at the bbc has passed away today i've just heard news and um his name was Ken Wilson. He was the producer of Sports World when I joined the BBC World Service and was producer of Sports World for many years and produced uh, uh, Russell Fuller uh, as the main presenter for a number of years. Oh, that's sad. Uh, Ken, yeah, I guess he would have been uh, not far past 70. Uh, he'd had a heart problem a couple oh. of years ago and he had a short illness and passed away. And I've just got a message from one of my closest colleagues from from the bbc one of the nicest most generous and gentle men you could ever meet you know real um and the antithesis of a lot of people who thrust their way to the front in the bbc he was he he, he simply did it you know sheer hard work and, and generosity of spirit and, and a polite and always uh, you know got the tease in should we put it that way you always need people like that yeah one of the, and i last saw ken at another funeral actually for james alexander gordon who um, was the man who used to read the sports results on Five Live. Everyone remembers his voice um, doing the, the football scores. And, uh, yeah, um, so, Ken, um, you know, I will miss you, mate. And, uh, you know, my thoughts are with your family. Uh, it is a sad day. And, um, you know, he, he had a big influence on myself, my generation of broadcasters, and... Uh, a lot of people that you will hear on air now. Mm. Um, but he left the BBC when we moved to Salford. So that's just over 10 years ago. Yeah. That was, that was his last last uh, time with the BBC, took early retirement, as many, many people did. Um, but, uh, yeah, Ken, you will be missed. And I'm so, so sorry to hear that news, which came through uh, about 10 minutes before we... All right, yeah, because you didn't even this. you didn't tell me, so I just <laughs> no, I yeah. didn't, I, I, I didn't, yeah. Well, I mean, no, I'm it's... just sort of processing the, the details, but, yeah. But you know, this is an opportunity because you know we're doing something, you know, in the sense there's a lineage there. Someone I've worked with, learned from. We're putting together a podcast. It's a different medium to radio, but nonetheless, 
there is a sort of dotted line. Absolutely, there's a link, isn't there? I no, mean, totally. you've taught me a lot. Sure, sure. And you're teaching me things <laughs> this, too. This doesn't come naturally. <laughs> More naturally than you think. You're very, very good. Anyway, so Ken, um, you know, my thoughts are with your family and... That's another sad note to end it on, I, you know. But, uh, we... but there is some, there was some positivity in our podcast. All, all the the catalogue and the and the printing yeah. issues we have. I mean, it's it's stressful, but it's positive. It's business. It's and business. It's proper business, and you know, it is actually nice to be dealing with humans and not just the algorithms. And also, I'm looking forward to a Hobart risotto for my dinner tonight. Yeah, yeah, I'm kind of looking forward to making it because it's quite involved, but. We're looking forward to that, and hopefully we'll hit the tennis court straight after that. <laughs> but it's been another busy week. We've got another busy week ahead. We are about to finish another audio project, throttled by A.B. Morgan. She's narrated it herself. I've done some of the editing. She's done some of the editing. We're waiting for the artwork, and it should go up to the distributors this week. So that's another reason to go to our website to see all of our audio books and also all of our books, our authors, and all our news at www.hobeck.net. And... Thank you for listening to the Hobcast, show number 72. We really appreciate it, and we appreciate even more if you subscribe to us (laughs) on whatever platform you you get your podcast from. And we're now, I think, on something like a dozen platforms, which is pretty good going. It's very good going, and the cat's happy too. She slept. We we should confess this is our third take of the podcast for various technical reasons, and in each one, the cat has slept through the whole thing. Yeah, that says a lot. So it just remains for me to say, from Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins, thank you so much for joining us here on the Hobcast Book Show. We hope you have a wonderful, creative week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Hobcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website, www.hobeck.net You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto Trad Values, Indie Spirit. Indie Spirit